0: You're listening to Consolidate That. Hi everyone, this is Ryan. Ivan and
1: I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to Consolidate That. This is the last episode of Season 1. The first season was filled with various themes and interesting guests, both within and outside of veterinary medicine. Our next season will peel back the curtain even more as we take you along step-by-step as we build our very own consolidator. Stay tuned for season two after the new year. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Consolidate That, Ivan. Really glad to be back with you. I feel like it's been a while since we've recorded one. We might be giving away the movie magic secrets here, but I feel like it's been a little while since we've gotten together to do an episode and we've got a really cool, probably our first ninja ever on the show as a guest. So I'm really excited for you to introduce him and to chat with him.
0: Yeah. Hi, Ryan. Excited to introduce our guest today. His name is Austin Hare. Interesting fact about the calendar events. When I book with you, Austin, Google thinks that it's a hair appointment, so it makes the Google Calendar event looking like scissors and something like that.
1: And if you've ever met Ivan, you know he does not have many hair appointments. (laughs) I focus
0: on those things a lot because I don't have any. But Austin has gone from professional wakeboarder to real estate investor to American Ninja Warrior. Austin is a partner at Leaders Real Estate Development and host of the Leaders Real Estate Secrets podcast and Real Estate University. Leaders Real Estate helps all types of healthcare organizations grow by developing creative real estate strategies and identifying the best locations and providing capital for building purchases. Austin, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here and I appreciate you having me on.
0: So we met through talking about, you know, the strategies around real estate and what we're doing at Galaxy, sort of, it, and uh, thinking of, should we buy or should we lease? Should we buy from the owner? Should we buy not from the owner? And then, you know, all of these decisions are coming to all consolidators when they're starting their first, you know, practices before they develop the solid strategy. So why don't we start, but let's take a step back. How do you become from? professional wakeboarder to real estate investor.
2: Yeah. So I started wakeboarding when I was 12. And so I pursued that like pretty aggressively and that brought me down to Orlando. So I was on the pro tour until like 2017 or so, but um, it was a lot of fun. What happened was my body just started not being able to take the beating. (laughs) So I started realizing like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out some sort of off ramp here. And I actually opened up some fitness centers and then I was investing, you know, in some Airbnbs and commercial real estate and stuff like that when I was looking for new locations to uh, bring my fitness centers to, that's when I met my partner. And so what happened was, you know, I had this idea of where I wanted to go in my head and it's like, I thought like, okay, I like these areas. I don't like these areas, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened was he came through and, My now partner at the time, we laid out all these different metrics by which to grade the locations. So we had like, we went seven layers deep in the analytical data, which is way deeper than I'd normally gone. We put a score by everything. We added it all up and we gave clarity. Like we had numbers around our metrics. What happened was the places that I felt really good about all of a sudden didn't look so good. And places that I didn't feel great about all of a sudden started to look really good. So I just really impressed the way that he did things. And then in 2019, I knew COVID was coming, so I sold the And <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I had no idea COVID was coming, but I just got super lucky. I did sell the gems. And that's so great timing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it was great timing. And my partner invited me to come work with him once I sold. And so, you know, I was impressed with the way he did stuff and I liked his processes. So I said, yeah, sure. And so that's, we kind of have merged our two backgrounds together now in the real estate strategies for, you know, healthcare and vet consolidators. That's such an awesome entrepreneurial journey and luck with the COVID.
0: Are those gyms still open or did they go out of business?
2: Sadly, one of them closed down and two of them are still open. So I had a total of three. I was getting ready to do the fourth one when I got in the disagreement with the franchisor. People say that multi-level marketing is a scam. Being a franchisee is a scam. <laughs> the yeah. only people who came right, into those are the franchisor. So yeah, that was really the reason why I got out of it when I sold when I did was because the disagreement with him. So I guess I kind of owe them a thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, it's probably good for like early stage trying, kind of dabbling with entrepreneurship. It's like structured entrepreneurship, I would call it. So
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's awesome. So, okay, well, let's dive in. I mean, you know, these questions, we have them. And then there's kind of two types of consolidators. Some, they're building de novo. So, obviously, there's, you know, analysis of where you put your practices is important. But then those that are uh, buying practices and potentially buying businesses and the book of business, but not necessarily wanting to stay in the same location. I mean, originally, you do want to stay in the same location. But would you suggest for those that are buying, and I think this is interesting to me, basically, when you are buying, I don't think it's in the due diligence list to check if your location is profitable. Because people are looking at the financial diligence, legal diligence, they look at the performance, but nobody goes, because you can do it without actually opening anything in the practice. You can do it remotely and say, if this is a profitable area where I can generate extra profit. So let's start with, should you buy or should you lease when you're starting a new one?
2: Yeah. So it really depends on what life cycle of the consolidation journey that you're in. And that's really the answer with a lot of these questions is it just depends, right? So i will try and do my best to lay out different situations and different scenarios that have different outcomes. So first of all, people think that buying the real estate is a diversification of their portfolio, but we got to remember is that the value of the building is tied to the tenant, right? And so although you have an asset, that's a physical asset, you might not be you're still highly correlated with the business because if, if the business tanks, if the vet shop that's there, that location tanks, and you can no longer fulfill the obligation of the lease, that building is far less valuable. So, you know, you really are not creating a huge amount of diversity. The second thing is, you know, we're all limited by the amount of capital that we have. And so even Bill Gates has gone on record saying he wishes he would feel comfortable once they had 12 months of operating expenses in the bank at Microsoft, right? That's coming from Bill Gates. So we all are constrained by the amount of capital. So What that means is what is the best use of your capital at the time? So if it comes down to, you know, investing in real estate or acquiring a new practice, right, doing an acquisition, what's going to give you a higher ROI? Usually almost every time the answer is focusing on your core competency. And so there obviously are exceptions. And like the further you get along that journey and the more and more profitable you get, the more it makes sense, because you might have excess cash, right? Maybe you have cash coming out of your ears. I don't know. But then it kind of makes sense to start and, and set up maybe like your own real estate development fund. Because real estate is good. It is profitable, right? But when you, it's not your core competency, you know, you might generate between 10, 15, sometimes like upper 18 percentage, right? But what are you going to get in your business? Are you going to get 30, 40, 50, 100%? I mean, you know, so it's really just spreadsheet math. And so we think that depending on where you are in the life cycle of your business determines that answer. But at any point in time, it makes sense to bring on partners too. So like there's partners, like, well, for instance, what we like to do is we like to come in, we'll buy the real estate on behalf of the vet consolidator group, and we'll do a lease back, right? And then we can also allow them to co-invest or we can figure out different ways to like align our incentives so they can have a piece of the upside of the real estate as well. And yeah, that's kind of like the lens that I look through because people ask us this question all the time.
1: So awesome. In the, you know, thinking about it on the practice acquisition side. So that you're buying the assets from the practice owner that's selling their business. When is the best time in that process, do you think, to introduce someone like yourself into the process? Is it after the LOI is signed? Is it during due diligence? Is it after the APA are signed? Where do you think that makes a lot of sense for you guys to come in?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's plenty of times where the people who are selling, like to say, you got an individual that who's selling to a consolidator. If they're staying on, which different groups have different structures, but if they're staying on, there's a chance they might want to hold onto that real estate, right? So definitely figure that out first. If they're looking to sell that real estate and you're unwilling or unable to buy it as a consolidator group, then at that stage is where you would reach out to us. And so I'm assuming. That by that point, you've probably done some due diligence and you may or may not have an LOI, but you know, at least like this is definitely a practice that I want. So it's like at the stage that you know that you want to acquire this practice and then the real estate starts to become maybe some sort of bottleneck. That's where it would make sense to reach out to a group like ours. So
0: the other thing that is interesting to me is I've heard different scenarios how people can lease the building for their business and i heard two models there's people that lease for you know a market price rent top of the market bottom whatever it is and then with a certain you know growth per year and maybe you can throw those numbers average like what is the market these days in terms of percentage of course markets are different but sort of you know is it like 3% 5%
2: yeah 2 to 3% annually
0: Two to three? Yeah. So you you kind of lock it into a lease, right? And then?
2: Yeah. And typically, you know, investors want to see 10-year terms or 12-year terms. And so, which is not hard. I mean, you know, if you spend all this money acquiring somebody, you've done a due diligence, you know they're a good fit. Like 10 years is not that long. And and the leases are set up really, even though it's kind of ironic because investors like long-term leases, but the leases actually protect the tenants because the owners can't kick them out or they can't up their rent. So it's really kind of funny how like investors like those longer terms, even though it prevents them from being able to collect more money. But yeah, so at the end of the day, usually like 10 to 12 year lease is a good fit to kind of help everybody Get a best case scenario.
0: And the second question. So I've seen a couple. So we we're talking to one that, and he wanted to retain the building after the sale and they don't want to practice anymore. But they said, I want to keep yeah, drawing income, pa- passive income from these buildings. But he was gearing to do that based on the percentage of revenue of the building. Do you see those contracts? Because to me, it just looks not attractive to the person who
2: rent. That's very atypical, you know, that's not normal at all. That's not something that we've ever done. So yeah, I would just personally, my preference is don't mix the two, just keep it. I mean, especially if you're buying it, you know, you don't want to be, it's almost like he's the franchiser, right? In that situation, right. you're giving a percentage of sales, like, exactly. you want like a, a fixed rate. That's back to
0: franchising. And especially because the thesis for consolidators is to acquire these businesses and improve them. So, therefore, they're kind of working on improving the businesses. And then it's sort of like a cut. It's sort of like a franchise. I like that analogy. So, that's interesting.
2: Yep, Keep a piece of the equity. You know what I mean? But sell a percentage of the thing. Don't sell the whole thing if you want a piece of the upside. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But then
0: there are situations that we discussed, you know, that there could be a when to relocate. So when do you see those cases? Because usually you buy a practice and, you know, you're buying book of business, you're buying the regular customer base. And then when does business or how should business look at it and say, look, we actually bought it in a crappy location. Why don't we just relocate down the road or wherever it is, but bring the clients with us? And how difficult it is have you seen in any other business aside from our domain to actually move and then not lose all the customers? along the way.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think a good story that illustrates this is if you look at fast food chains back in the 50s and 60s, right? There are all these mom and pop shops coming around, popping up, opening up places wherever. And the ones who did really well were the ones who really focused on their locations. And they wanted to get the corners of Maine and Maine. And they really did their demographic research and started putting them out there. And then the history of, or the, yeah, the story of the fast food chains is, is history, right? It's very obvious. So after them, you kind of had like some drug stores kind of starting to do that in the 70s and 80s. And then in 2000s, the banks started to do it. And then more recently, dental groups like DSOs have started to do it in the teens. So, what is happening is, like, you know, they're doing, they're spending a lot more money paying those retail rates because they're making it very, very, very convenient for the customer. And so, what happens is they're not dumb, right? Like, biggest DSOs in the entire world and, and the biggest pharmacies in the entire world are doing these strategies and they're doing them well. So, what happens is, you know, you might look at acquiring a practice, you know, a vet hospital, and you're thinking to yourself, you have your metrics you mentioned earlier, okay, revenue, quality of earnings. You obviously, you think about growth potential, whatever. You're looking at all these things, but there's an assumption that their location is working because it's gotten them this far. And so what happens is sometimes, yes, you do close on a location and you realize, hey, it's gotten them this far, but we're not going to be able to go any further. A, we're physically constrained by the building. Or B, we've tapped out our digital marketing. We've tapped out our mail, We've tapped out our word of mouth. Like we literally need street visibility and good, energetic, like anchor tenants or neighbor tenants to drive more traffic to this place, which is what a lot of the sophisticated guys are doing. So at that stage, that's when you have to think about relocating. And so really to answer your question about you lose patients, you lose clients when you relocate, it just depends on how far. I mean, most of the time, like if you're in a recessed, like old kind of dilapidated house, like that's in a neighborhood, which I know a lot of groups still have, you can probably find a good prominent retail center, not too far from there. You know what I mean? Like less than half a mile, less than a quarter mile. And if you do that well, like the chances are people aren't going to stop going. So it's not only the
0: street visibility. Well, it is street visibility, but when you have the clients that are locked with you because of the area and where they live, because people don't go beyond like 10, 15 miles to visit their veterinarians, usually if it's not an emergency. So then if you're still sort of within that area, you just inform all of your clients and then moving in and essentially they'll just start coming to a different location. Is that the hypothesis that that will be...
2: Uh, you know, sometimes we have a saying called drive to or drive through and drive through just means like you pass by on the way to wherever you're going. Drive to would mean you got a big anchor tent, like a grocery store or a home depot or something that people are going there for. And because the average family goes to the grocery store like two point three times per week. So they're already going there. It's super easy for them to you know, take their pet over and drop them off or do whatever. Or they, or they see them constantly and it reminds them, oh, I've I got to do this. Right. And so having like in a big retail plaza like that can definitely increase new business, but also the existing clients that you have, it might actually make it easier for them. So the only problem is this is not a new strategy. It's very saturated. It's very hard to get in with those good grocery stores like Publix or H E V or whatever. People are lining up you know, ahead of time to go in where these new developments happen. So you really got to keep your eye on when something becomes available so you can go in and snatch it because there's a lot of companies that are taking advantage of the foot traffic that is caused by those big grocery stores.
0: So one thing that your company does, we talked before, it's not that you just help to acquire property or lease property, you also help to actually build. Is that common among the real estate businesses or is that something that you offer, you know, and this is sort of an extra? What does it look like if someone is looking into starting de novo? What does it look like you as a partner? What do you guys do?
2: Yeah, yeah. So we like to refer to ourselves as the third party real estate department without the overhead, right? Because we don't make our fees from the clients that we work with, we make them from the sale on sell side, right? Which not the buy side, not the vet consolidator side. And so I don't know anybody else who does all four things in terms of like negotiating leases, finding new locations, doing leasebacks, and also doing development for new locations. So what that looks like is essentially, you know, if we're trying to find a spot and nothing is available then like yeah absolutely we'll go in and we'll buy a location and we'll build the building up either from the ground or usually what development means is you're buying an existing location or existing building or standalone building maybe you might even have one or two other tenants for total of three tenants you're buying that building and you're repurposing it you're developing it for the use of the vet consolidator and so yeah that comes up like you know we always focus on what's the best for the business what's gonna be the best thing for the organization as a whole right if like if two things are equal and you've got the ability to lease an existing spot or you got the ability to build the de novo, like from the, you know, do a development, a lot of times you're going to be quicker just to go to the lease. So we go with that one first, but if nothing's available and you know where you want to go and you got to develop it, yeah, that's where we can really start to shine and be dangerous. So we'll come in and we'll buy develop for the client.
0: But you also mentioned before that the development is not just uh, sort of building from the ground up, but it's also when you find the location, you help to sort of do the initial sort of box so that they fit their business into. Is that part of what you do?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you start with the demographics and the data, right? Trying to find out where is that best spot. And then from that point, yeah, if there's an existing building, but maybe it's empty or maybe somebody's lease is ending and they're not renewing, then that's when, yeah, we would essentially buy the building and come in and build it out. So we don't do the finishes, right? Like we can go in and we've done a lot of healthcare, you know, all around the country because it it's quite different than like a restaurant or coffee shop or something like that because you, you just have a lot of different stations and you have a lot of different plumbing and electric needs and stuff like that. And so essentially, we would build it up to the specifications that the tenant requires. and then they would come through and they would put their finishes on to make it unique to them with the different, you know, maybe they have a certain like pink color that they like and like certain signage and certain finishes for, you know, their front desk or something like that. So does that make sense?
0: No, totally. Yeah, it does.
1: What I'm curious too is, so you're helping people figure out how to do the leases, where to do them, relocation, but you have the idea of maybe office versus retail space and... Obviously, we talked about the foot traffic that can come from a big anchor like a grocery store, but how do you think that maybe an established place should be looking at the right spot to build out their business? You're talking about
2: like an established vet consolidator?
1: Yeah. So let's say someone listening owns 25 practices, right? And one of their practices is in an older building, they need to relocate, they need to look at some additional spaces and They don't want to go through the building process, you know, from ground up, but they want to find an existing space. Should they be looking in a, we talked about the grocery store, but those are hard to come by. So let's say, do you want to look at a retail space? Do you want to look at maybe more of like the ground floor of an office building or where would you sort of drive people in those senses?
2: So I got another story about this one. Um, There was a guy, he was in healthcare that we were working with and he was paying about $3,000 a month in rent. And he was in the back of this plaza, was in the Southeast and he just wasn't getting good visibility. So we found him another spot that had great visibility, had great you know, neighbor tenants, it was $10,000 a month in rent. So on paper, it's like, holy crap, I'm more than tripling my rent. It's like a 300% increase or something like that. It's very intimidating, right? But what happened was, you gotta remember, your rent is only a factor of your overall expenses. So from a percentage standpoint of your overall expenses, it's only like two to 10% or something. And when he went here, he actually ended up doubling his revenue monthly. So went from $50,000 to $100,000 a month in revenue collection. And so it ended up being a very, very good trade-off, even though it was tripling on paper. And so what we say is like, if you look at rent as a factor of marketing, it can quickly start to pay for itself. Because with digital ads and print ads, digital ads are a good example because they're a bidding platform. They're like, you know, it's auction-based. So they're only ever going to go up because as more and more people start to do them and as you're competing against other businesses. So at least the thing about your rent is it's locked in. And so we always kind of encourage people, hey, like, pay the extra money, you know, pay a couple bucks extra per square foot. Like, yes, it'll, it'll cost you several thousand a month. But at the end of the day, when you really think about how many patients, how much more visibility, how many more clients, how many more people you're going to see, if you do it correctly, it's going to pay for itself.
0: So since we're talking about the price of the lease, what are the best strategies to negotiate for your lease?
2: Yeah. So first of all, just as a general rule, it's never good to be desperate, right? So you don't want to have like one spot that you're looking at because They can just feel that, you know, people can feel if you're desperate. So we always recommend maybe you pick two trade areas that you want to go. And when I say trade area, I mean like a three to four mile radius. Or if you are going like, if you know you want to go in one trade area, try to identify at least three like viable buildings. And sometimes you might not get that many, to be honest, but hopefully you can or at least get two. And that way, like you're negotiating back and forth. So that's the first step: is don't be desperate. And so once you have that, then you know you just want to kind of find out what the landlord wants or what they need. And, and what I mean is, if they're buying to flip or if they just own it and they're trying to flip it, they'll be willing to give you TI money that will increase your rent, and they can get a higher number for that building, right? If they're what is if they're it, older TI money, just, uh, just it's an improvement. improvement? Yeah, you know when you move into a practice, usually a new building, usually they'll give you some amount of money, maybe it's 50,000, maybe it's 100,000, you know, it's usually based on a square foot, like it's a certain dollar per square foot. So if they want to hold a building, maybe they're an older landlord, they have no interest in flipping it, they just want to hold and collect cash flow, you know, you can negotiate cheaper rent by getting less TI. On the flip side of that, you know, if they're trying to sell this, they're trying to flip it, you can negotiate really high TI for in exchange for a little bit higher rent, because now they're gonna be able to sell that building for higher because the what you sell the building for is oftentimes based on the amount of rent coming in. So finding out what the landlord actually needs is a good thing. And then just making sure you're clear on what you want. So like if you have a place, if you want good street signage, which you should, you want good street visibility, making sure that you're voicing that to them. If it's not meeting some of your things, then you can always go to them and say, hey, like, you know, you're asking this, but it doesn't have good street visibility. or There's trees blocking it, or it doesn't have enough parking. You know, we're going to do this. And so it's like being able to identify to them the extra cost that you might have to incur by taking their building can also help them come down with the price too.
1: Very nice. Yeah, it's kind of interesting too, because in a lot of the situations, the for the consolidators, your landlord might be your selling doctor as well. So there should be uh, some alignment on what you both want. You both want success for the business and in in a different situation than a landlord that's looking at like, well, I own, I have a gym tenant, I have a vet clinic, I've got a frozen yogurt shop and a Jersey Mike's or something all in the same place. So it's, it is kind of neat that I guess when you're looking to do those negotiations, hopefully you're coming with these clients in a place of mutual growth and mutual benefit. And I guess that's kind of the other thing that comes from the value of doing a partnership model or doing a an equity roll in of the clinic and, and those sort of things, because then the success of the consolidator is tied to the success of the location, success of the tenant, success of the landlord, and everybody.
2: Yeah, you know, and actually, I skipped over this, but really, the most important thing is getting somebody in your corner who's going to work with you, like a, a really good broker. Right now, it doesn't necessarily have to be us. But what happens? We see this all the time: is like people think, "Oh, yeah." Like, okay, cool. Let me check the box, commercial real estate broker. And it's their golfing buddy. It's their cousin. It's their brother-in-law. It's somebody. They're trying to help them out. They're trying to throw a bone. But unless you get somebody that's really an expert in your field, and by expert, I mean more than 10 deals, then you're going to be costing yourself a lot of money because this is like often the first most important decision that you make is where you're going to go with your location or when you relocate, because it's very, very expensive to relocate. And so we just see people that are shooting themselves in the foot by picking somebody who's not well qualified, and especially like local guys can work, but it's not often that we see that simply because they know the market, they know the market very, very well, but they might not know your specific industry that well. Versus working with somebody national, well, they know your specific industry very, very well, even though they might not know the market that well. So it's the lens that they're looking at it through is reverse. Instead of thinking like, okay, I know here, how can we make the bet work? It's like, no, where can we go that's going to make it work for the bet? So I think that's one of the biggest things is just you know picking somebody who's really qualified and has done multiple deals in the bet consolidator industry. Really cool. Well,
0: we blew through 25 minutes almost, and we usually promise our listeners about 25. So we usually ask a couple of questions at the end. Is there a book that you could recommend our listeners to kind of dabble in the knowledge that you have and to learn more?
2: I mean, yeah, you know, On Negotiation, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. That's a great book. But, you know, that's just about negotiation in general. And I think that would be very useful, whether you're doing mergers and acquisitions or trying to negotiate a lease. I think all those things I think will help with all those things. That's awesome.
0: And who else do you think could benefit from being invited? Or actually, what are listeners who they can benefit from inviting someone else onto this show?
2: Yeah, sure. I work with a guy who does virtual tours. His name is Choreograph. I know him. Uh, talking about virtual tours could be really interesting. Austin, awesome, That's great. Thank you so much. We
1: really appreciate having you on the show. This was great. Ton of information that I know Ivan and I want to dive into and learn more about. If people want to reach out to you or find your website, what's the best contact or... Website or a place to learn more about you?
2: Yeah. So it's just Leaders Real Estate is the name of our firm. And so it's leadersre.com and www.leadersre.com. And then the same as my email is Austin Hair. So A, first initial, Hair, A Hair at Leadersre.com. Well,
1: thanks, Austin. And thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com